You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Uh, welcome. Uh, this is our, uh, our first philosophy, politics, and economics workshop for the year. It's dedicated to a uh, conversation about Chris Coyne and Abby Hall's uh, recent book, uh, Tyranny Comes Home uh, from Stanford University Press, uh, published last spring. And in order to discuss uh, the book, we have three distinguished scholars, Miriam Cohen, uh, Jim Terman, and Jessica Trisco-Darden. I get those names all right? I apologize. Uh, Miriam is a professor of law at the University of Montreal. Um, she has um, worked uh, as a professional of international uh, office of the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. And since 2005, uh, she used to teach at the University, professor of law at Lakeland University in Ontario. Uh, Jim, uh, John uh, Tierman is the executive director and the principal research scientist at MIT Center for International Studies. Um, he's the author, co-author, and editor of 14 books on international affairs, including, including most recently uh, Dream, Dream Chasers, Immigration, and the American Backlash. Uh, <coughs> and Jessica. Uh, Trisco Darden is a professor over at American University School of International Services, and she is the associate director of Bridging the Gap, and uh, her research focuses on international influences on interstate conflict and political violence, particularly focused on Asia. And Chris Coyne, who is the author of the book today, um, is a, as you all know, a professor here in the economics department at George Mason University. These uh, Baldy Harper Professor, uh, and he is also the Associate Director of, uh, of the Hayek Program. Um, I, as luck would have it, I actually wrote a little thing about Chris and Abby's ball to, uh, book today um, about having to do with the issues of how do we actually render the costs and benefits in public policy. Because I think one of the big things that we make an error about in public policy evaluations is again going back to Bastiat is we look at only what is the seen and not as the one what is unseen and one of the really great strengths of this book is to consider for us for a moment what the consequences are long-run consequences on domestic liberties that are generated by foreign interventions um, and what they do is what Abby and, and Chris do in their book is they examine using basic economic reasoning um, all of the bureaucratic dysfunctions, uh, the uh, sort of incentive effects that are involved, uh, these consequences, costs that are associated with militarization, and what they call the boomerang effects, which we'll hear about, I'm sure, today. And if, uh, if you think about these things in terms of just simply cultivating a conversation where people consider the costs rather than just the seen benefits of, of engaging in these things, it would actually give us pause to think about some of the uh, activities or interventions that we engage in. And to me, it's really hard to imagine what could be a better use of basic economic reasoning than to actually address that issue because if we thought twice about things, 
maybe three times, maybe four times about things, we might not only save billions of dollars, we also might end up by saving a tremendous amount of lives as well as our liberties, both uh, 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 in foreign countries as well as here. So what we're going to do, the game plan for this, is to have Chris uh, give a basic presentation over the, over the book, and then we'll have reactions just going right in order. So you'll just feed right in, okay? Just go like just like that, and then we'll have it open up for Q&A afterwards. Uh, all right? Okay, Chris, uh, please welcome Chris Coyne. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, it's truly wonderful to speak to you all today. Um, and I wanted to uh, thank Miriam, uh, uh, Jessica, and John for taking the time out of their schedules to come uh, and talk about the book, so thank you. And I also wanted to thank uh, uh, Lauren Deckhouse and Stephanie uh, Hoffley for organizing all this and putting it together. Uh, my co-author, Abby Hall, uh, who's a graduate of this program, uh, unfortunately couldn't uh, be here today, uh, but uh, I just wanted to, to give her a mention too uh, because she was uh, crucial in, in making this project happen. Uh, and I know she would have liked to be here if she could have been. And so the way I thought I'd proceed is to provide a very high-level overview of the central arguments uh, in the book, and I'll follow briefly the structure of the book, not going into too much detail in any one aspect, uh, but, but give you a sense of what we're trying to do. Uh, and so uh, I, I want to start with three quotes. Probably all of them are, are well-worn uh, and, and cliche at this point, but I still think they're capturing the essence of what we're trying to do. Uh, and so this is James Madison's famous quote about uh, the role of war and the preservation of freedom. Uh, and as Madison points out, look, there's numerous uh, uh, negative uh, potential effects of, of war, of militarism. Uh, uh, one is the fiscal aspect. That's the debt, taxes, and so on. Uh, but later on uh, in this quote, he points out that uh, uh, war making also expands the discretionary power of the executive. Uh, that is, it's not just a scale issue that Madison notes, but also a, a scope, the range of activities that the state is under, uh, able to undertake. Uh, John Quincy Adams, of course, people love quoting Adams saying America does not go in search of monsters to destroy, but very rarely do they follow up with the next few lines of that, uh, which is why uh, Adams said that. And, the, and, and his justification for this is that uh, America would, would lose uh, uh, her spirit. Uh, it would shift from, from liberty to, to force. Uh, uh, so. Uh, there's real effects of war, Madison uh, points out. Uh, Tocqueville, excuse me, Adams. Uh, Tocqueville and Democracy in America uh, points out that, that war uh, doesn't give over in, in democratic societies, doesn't often give over directly to military government, uh, but it softens people. Uh, it allows for a form of soft despotism to emerge, whereby uh, people become habituated into uh, the militaristic uh, mindset, things become centralized uh, under the purview of the state, and so on. Uh, and uh, the reason I, I start with these is because what each of these authors is emphasizing is that war, war making, whether the preparation for war or engaging in war, has real effects on domestic life, uh, effects that are typically overlooked. Uh, and so people oftentimes look at the monetary outlays uh, of, of war. They tend to look at lives lost to the extent that they focus on these things, typically in the country carrying out the intervention. Of course, the deaths of people in the countries, or country or countries being intervened upon are often neglected, uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, 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 people sometimes talk about those costs, the, the human costs, uh, but what they oftentimes neglect is that warfare, uh, militarism, has real effects on domo domestic life, and that they're nuanced. They're oftentimes unseen. They're not readily evident. 
And so this is what Abby and I are trying to do in this, this, this book, to, to focus on this small slice, small but important slice of uh, uh, war making. Uh, our, our focus is on America uh, in the book. Uh, in principle, you could apply the framework we developed to, to other societies, other countries that engage in uh, interventionism. Uh, but in the book, we lay out a case for focusing on America. And the main focus is that uh, the American government uh, dominates the globe uh, in terms of military and economic power. Uh, and the U.S. government has its uh, various tentacles uh, uh, all around the globe uh, through its bases, uh, through its uh, aid provision, through special ops, uh, and so on. Uh, it pretty much influences everything, uh, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, and so the, the core argument we want to make is that uh, foreign intervention uh, often acts like a boomerang. And so a boomerang properly thrown returns to the sender. Uh, and while many people, uh, including many people that tend to consider themselves to be skeptical of government in other areas of life, uh, minimal government types or limited government types, will oftentimes say things like, you need a very strong or proactive military in order to defend freedom, in order to defend liberty, in order to spread liberty and freedom. And that might be the case, but one of the things we're trying to emphasize is it also may not be the case. That is, you cannot neatly separate domestic life from proactive foreign interventions abroad. And so what we want to argue, or what we do argue, is that both preparing for and engaging in foreign interventions provide a testing ground. Uh, the government, the U.S. government, is able to go into other societies or to invest resources in preparing to go in, into other societies. And when they do that, they are engaged in experimentation, uh, research and development, in, if you will, in controlling other people, in imposing uh, their will upon other human beings. Uh, and as I'll talk about in a few moments, uh, uh, when the American government uh, uh, goes abroad, uh, it acts exactly as an unconstrained leviathan uh, uh, would be expected to act uh, for those who appreciate uh, uh, basic economics. Uh, that is when a, uh, there is a significant concentration of force and power in the hands of a small number of people, and there are very weak, if not non-existent, constraints on that power, uh, we expect uh, that power to be used in ways which imposes significant costs on others. Uh, and so that's the underlying idea here. Then we attempt to explore or provide some insight into the conditions under which those innovations in social control uh, may return home. They don't always return home, but they often do, uh, and influence and shape uh, uh, domestic life, oftentimes for the worst. And so, in order to understand this, uh, where we start is talking about what foreign intervention entails. Uh, and, and foreign intervention is brute force. Uh, that's ultimately what foreign intervention is. It is a small group of people uh, who look at other societies and make the determination that they are unhappy with the current state of affairs in that society. Of course, if they weren't uh, unhappy, the urge to intervene would be non-existent. There'd be no point behind it. And so the idea is that uh, uh, there, there is a dissatisfaction with what is happening in other societies. Uh, and of course, you can ask people to voluntarily change their behavior, uh, but oftentimes they are unwilling to do so. Uh, in which case, the, uh, government, uh, the government agents who are unhappy with the status quo uh, have the choice of either refraining uh, and, and just going about their business, uh, or using uh, uh, weapons and tools of social control to impose their will upon other people. And uh, this is an important aspect because uh, at, at, its, at the heart of it, uh, a foreign intervention is force, either direct force or the threat of force. Uh, uh, it has to be uh, because, uh, uh, again, uh, if there was voluntary compliance, this would be a non-issue. The, the intervention would not need to take place 
uh, at all. Uh, and so you can either force people to do what you want directly, uh, or you can raise the cost of defection high enough such that the threat of force uh, makes them comport with your goals, with the preferences of the interveners. Uh, and, uh, and again, this is important to recognize because the nature of this is inherently illiberal. Uh, it, it is uh, 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 violence. It is coercion. Uh, uh, again, direct or, or the, the threat thereof. And so given that, given that the government, the U.S. government, invests significant amounts of resources, and since the Cold War, of course, excuse me, since World War II, with the onset of the Cold War, the U.S. government's foreign policy has been one of uh, uh, constant preparation for permanent war. So total preparation for total war. Uh, prior to that, of course, prior to the World Wars, um, the U.S. government has always meddled in, in various parts of the world to differing degrees, but there were ebbs and flows. Uh, there, there was ramping up of, of investment and uh, effort during times of war, uh, but then after you'd see a, a fall, uh, not completely back to its baseline, but you would see a, a fall in, in, in the resources that were invested in these efforts. Uh, in the wake of World War II, uh, the, the shift was to we need to have a permanent war economy and a permanent investment in preparing for future wars. Uh, and so uh, there's a constant investment on the part of the U.S. government in terms of monetary resources, human capital, uh, and, and effort uh, uh, by both government and investments in resources to convince citizens that it's necessary to make those permanent investments for permanent war uh, in developing new tools of social control, new tools to control other people. Uh, typically, the argument goes abroad. So then how can this boomerang back? How can this social capital uh, come back home? How is it possible? Uh, again, I want to make clear, the argument is not uh, uh, a, a monocausal argument that you know, the government invests money in war and, uh, and uh, the world goes to hell in, in America. That's not the argument. It's not that every investment leads to bad things. It's not that foreign interventions generate no benefits. It's that oftentimes there are these unintended consequences, which you can't really measure because there's no monetary value to these type of things, but that nonetheless happen and have real impacts on the liberties and freedoms of domestic citizens. And so the way we set this up is uh, uh, we talk about two kind of foundational conditions which lower the cost of government-produced social control returning home. Uh, and the first is citizens' fear. And there's a large literature on this. Uh, and the, the core argument is pretty straightforward. When citizens fear, fear something, whether that fear is genuine or uh, 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 exaggerated, typically, again, through massive investments on the part of the state to create fear, which uh, uh, government, all governments do, but the American government certainly does, uh, in terms of, of creating uh, a, a sense among the citizenry that we live in, in the most dangerous time in the history of mankind, there's threats around every corner and so on. Uh, nonetheless, uh, when, when citizens have some kind of uh, uh, real fear or, or sense of fear about external threats, they are more willing to turn over power to the government. Uh, and again, that power can be both in scale or the size of government, but more import importantly for our purposes, scope, the range of activities that they are able to, that the government's able to undertake with citizens' support. Uh, related to this, there's the consolidation of state power, which of course uh, uh, foreign affairs, national defense, national security is by definition carried out by the national government, the central government. And of course, one of the checks on the power of the national government is, is a federalist type system. It is the separation of powers through different levels of, of, of political government. That's the idea at least. Uh, but during wartime, power tends to be centralized in the hands of the uh, uh, federal 
government, the national government, at the expense of state governments. Uh, so the political periphery, if you will, loses, its, loses power uh, relative to the political center. And so there's numerous examples of this. Uh, just to provide two, in the, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, uh, something called uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force were created. Uh, these were supposed to be partnerships between the federal government and, and state, local uh, governments in the name of combating terrorism. Uh, but of course, these things are all driven by the federal government, uh, majority of the funding, the policies, uh, uh, the uh, uh, policies that are adopted and enforced, and so on. And so this is just one example of how, through this process, uh, in this case, the war on terror, which is both a open-ended war, meaning there's no clear end to it, and interestingly and importantly, a war that covers not just the rest of the world, but also American soil, uh, which means that there is literally war. That, of course, the war on drugs as well is a, is a similar type setup. And so uh, what you have through these Joint Terrorism Task Force is the consolidation of state power. Uh, the militarization of police, which is the flow of military resources, again, from the federal government down to the local levels, is another uh, example of how uh, the various levels of government can become integrated into one with the local levels of government becoming increasingly dependent on the uh, uh, national government in order to obtain resources uh, and, um, and uh, manpower and so on. And so both of these things, uh, these factors in various ways, set the stage, if you will, for the return of the tools of, of social control. And so then we want to think about how these things actually end up returning home. Uh, and we identify three channels uh, in, in our framework. The first is human capital, which is we call what foreign intervention is. Foreign intervention, as I mentioned, is the threat or use of force to impose will upon other people. Just like in other areas of life, there are people who become specialists in doing this, and they become extremely good at it. In fact, there is an entire apparatus in the U.S. military to train them to do that. Uh, some of them use, are trained in brute force. Some of them are trained in thinking about various techniques and ways of, of making social control more efficient in coming up with new and better ways of doing things. And this doesn't, isn't just physical force, although that is one form of this. There's also, of course, a, a huge population of, of scientists, of engineers, of uh, uh, people from a biologists, from a whole range of different disciplines who are employed by the U.S. government to develop and come up with ways of controlling people. Uh, uh, psychologists, of course. Uh, uh, mind control has been a major investment on the part of the U.S. government, especially during uh, the Cold War, efforts to read people's minds. And so on, psychics, the U.S. government has employed psychics um, to try to read people's minds and so on. So literally touches all aspects of life. In any case, these specialists, and, and by the way, we identify, I believe it's five mechanisms within the American government that tends to, they're filtering mechanisms, they're selection mechanisms. And so if you think about it, what type of people are going to be attracted to positions of controlling other people? People that are comfortable imposing their will upon other people or following the orders of people that are comfortable uh, uh, doing that. What else? Uh, people that uh, are comfortable using force uh, or the threat thereof, people that are able to, in their heads, separate the per fact that someone is a human being from doing real harm to them, from imposing your way of life upon them. Uh, and, and, and so there's that aspect. Uh, there's an entire uh, process within the American military or national security state of advancement. Uh, and the way you advance is to be a good soldier, to be a contributor, not to go against the grain. Uh, and so there are selection mechanisms uh, in the national security apparatus which tends to reward people that are effective innovators, that are special effective specialists in social control, and to uh, 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 advance these things. If, if anything else, toe the line, if not advance these things. 
when conflicts end, uh, these skills don't go away. Again, it's like any other aspect of life. Uh, these skills become part of the person. And uh, some people come back from if they're abroad or they leave their roles in the national security state and they integrate into normal human life. They go about doing whatever it else it is they want to do, whether it's returning to their families, becoming an entrepreneur, going back to teaching, whatever. Others cash in on their unique human capital. That is, they are able to obtain a relatively higher wage by uh, leveraging their unique human capital. The massive uh, uh, private contracting uh, apparatus in the U.S. military represents this perfectly, uh, which is many of these folks are former members of the military. Uh, they have certain skills which are desirable. They have the connections and so on. And so they are able to leverage this. Uh, many security companies, of course, uh, if you look, especially the big ones, uh, actively promote this fact. And so like L3 Communications, if you go to their website, you know they brag about how 50% of their workforce or something like that Maybe it's 25% are, are former military veterans, and this is a, a you know this is we're patriotic, we employ former military veterans and so on, uh, and that might very well be the case. Uh, uh, but those people have a certain mindset and certain skills that they have developed. Uh, organizational dynamics. So when these people return, it doesn't have to be all of them. It's a marginal argument. Some of them go back into positions of influence. They influence the foreign policy of the American government. They influence certain aspects of that foreign policy, not necessarily the entire grand strategy, but certain aspects of it, uh, uh, the way things are done. They offer their services, as I mentioned, through contracting, through members of the government, and so on. And so if you look at things like we talk about in the book, like the surveillance state, started with someone who developed, uh, 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 gained their surveillance chops uh, in the Philippines in the late 1800s, who developed their human capital, uh, surveilling and controlling, uh, people that the U.S. government was occupying. When they returned home, they then took that unique ha human capital and attempted to replicate it domestically. Uh, uh, SWAT teams in California, the very purpose was to import uh, the skills uh, and techniques used by military forces abroad into domestic life. Of course, they were only supposed to be used in very limited circumstances. That was the idea. These are only going to be used in, in very narrow set of circumstances, and that's it. They won't be abused. That was the, the claim. But the very purpose was to import military techniques, uh, uh, physical capital, which I'll come to, on, uh, come to later and so on. In any case, the, these folks uh, integrate into various organizations and agencies, whether private or public or some mix thereof. Uh, and they have real uh, influence on the uh, fabric of, of domestic life. Physical capital. As I mentioned, the US government invests significant resources in research and development when it comes to military. In fact, these things are praised. These things are typically praised as protecting the freedoms and liberties of citizens. People like to harp on all the spillover effects of these things. So there's a, a, a whole literature that points to the spillover effects of military spending. You'll hear people talk about the internet, Tang, GPS. I don't know who drinks Tang, but um, <laughs> people highlight that. Uh, and that's all fine and good. Uh, 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 but also, the tools uh, uh, that allow people to effectively control other people also are imported back as well. Uh, that is, things that make the state more efficient in controlling people uh, abroad also make them, uh, allow them to control people domestically as well. And so that's the broad framework. And again, we go into all the nuances of this. Uh, so why, why is America susceptible? Most people would say, look, we, we're a constitutional republic. We have strong checks. The, the standard argument against civil libertarian types is I walk around and I don't see a dictatorship taking over. You, you, you all are overstating this. Well, go back to the Tocqueville quote. I think that's an important point here. Right, which is Tocqueville's distinction between hard despotism and soft despotism. As, as Tocqueville pointed out, the fear is not so much that tomorrow a dictator will arise, although that's conceptually possible, it's not impossible. 
but more so there's this creeping slow process through which the power of the state increases in our daily lives uh, in ways that uh, are almost unobservable in, in many instances. And so why is America susceptible? Uh, because of the facade of, of the Constitution, because of the uh, facade that there are constraints in place which limit the state. Uh, there's weak domestic constraints, weak, and these by weak I mean either lots of slack in the system or, or non-existent, weak national constraints and weak international constraints, domestic constraints. Uh, uh, the law uh, st legal scholar Michael Glennon at Tufts uh, has written a, a wonderful book recently called Double Government, uh, and he makes this argument that there's a dual state. Uh, there's what uh, uh, there's the uh, kind of the distinguished state, if you will. That's the the pomp and circumstance uh, that we all see around elections, around swearing to uphold the Constitution, people going to vote. These are all the things people have in mind when they think about democracy, when they think that they're involved, their voice is being heard, that they're looking out for us, the little guy. But then there's what he calls the efficient state, and the efficient state is the machinery. That's the the underlying machinery of the state. Uh, and there's overlap in these areas. It's not like the, the, the distinguished or dignified state uh, is, is, is just a passive player. But the efficient state does a lot of stuff. And it does a lot of stuff in an unchecked manner, especially when it comes to national security. When you move into these kind of discussions about what many people refer to as the deep state, the idea that there are state actors that are not elected and not subject to the checks and balances that are uh, exist in other areas of uh, politics, of course, many people you know, think that you're being a, a conspiracy theorist, uh, and, and uh, it can come across like that. But if you have an appreciation for the, or, uh, the industrial organization of bureaucracies, the industrial organization of democratic politics, and the basic logic of interests, you hopefully understand how this operates, which is the national security state itself, if we put aside everything else government does, is enormous. The uh, idea that members of Congress and oversight committees or the executive can somehow understand what's going on in its entirety or check them uh, is impossible, totally beyond human reason, even for the most benevolent other regarding person. Second of all, there's massive secrecy. There is the overabuse of classification in the national security state. Of course, this started mainly really ramping up during the Cold War with the idea of protecting national secrets, but of course people abuse it all the time to protect information, which then leads to the final point, which is that the national security state typically is the source of information to the other branches of government, which allows them to manipulate and control information that is supposedly being used to check them. That combination should, along with others that we talk about, should shed light on why that's problematic. Weak national constraints. The co U.S. Constitution does not follow the flag. So when the U.S. government goes abroad, the U.S. Constitution does not follow it. This is the result, the precedent for this is the result of something called the Insular Cases. The Insular Cases were a series of Supreme Court cases in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, and, and the Insular here comes from the Bureau of Insular Affairs which oversaw the territories that were acquired by the U.S. government uh, at the outcome of the Spanish-American War. This is Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines. And what happened is uh, Downs, I think his name's Samuel Downs, he was an importer of oranges, and he brought oranges from Puerto Rico to New York to bring them in. And uh, I think it's George Bidwell charged him uh, duties on that as an import, and he took him to court uh, because he said it violated the uniformity clause of the Constitution which says that when Congress uh, imposes taxes and duties, they have to be uniform across the states. And so what Down said is, uh, this is a U.S. territory. It, it is, should be treated equally. There should be no additional uh, 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 discretionary taxes and duties. The Supreme Court, five to four, decided in the name of Bidwell. Uh, and uh, this is from uh, Supreme Court Justice Henry Brown, uh, who voted uh, in, in favor of uh, Bidwell. 
And he's very clear about this. Uh, we don't want to misstep because we'll, we might limit the American empire. In other words, the very purpose was to leave slack and constraints so that future U.S. governments could intervene abroad uh, and be uh, somewhat, at least, if not largely, unconstrained in how they treated other people. And so uh, uh, the, the same rights and liberties that American citizens are subject to, which are have significant slack unto, them, unto themselves, are even weaker when you move abroad. And finally, weak international constraints, which is the U.S. government uh, uh, blatantly violates international laws, much of which it, it helped design or was directly uh, 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 in charge of designing in earlier years and decades, but violates them at will whenever it so chooses, whenever it benefits those that are in control, uh, with little to no recourse, uh, and there's really no one to punish them uh, for doing this. And so the, the main takeaway here is there's significant slack in the system. There's significant space for the tools uh, and activities of social control developed to impose things, among others, to return home. I won't go into detail on any uh, of these due to, to lack of time, but these are the four kind of case studies we have uh, in the book. Uh, so state surveillance, militarization of police, drones, and torture. And in various ways, shapes, and forms, uh, all of these things illustrate the various uh, uh, theoretical aspects that we were talking about earlier. Uh, and they can be, the theoretical apparatus can be used to understand how these things have returned home in various ways. And so let me just sum up and spend a few moments on this with, with some of the con concluding kind of themes. Number one, the costs uh, of interventions are understa understated. That might, again, seem kind of mundane and obvious. Uh, but again, as Pete mentioned at the outset, and I'll just reiterate, the, the key thing here is, is these overlooked costs that very few people talk about. Uh, and, and you can understand why. They're hard. They're hard to talk about because they're not easy to, 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 to quantify. Uh, there's a lot of counterfactual thinking involved and so on. Uh, when a society adopts the values of a militaristic uh, uh, empire, it runs the risk of adopting those characteristics at home. Uh, number three, formal constraints are extremely limited in protecting the citizens' uh, 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 liberties and rights. Uh, and look, you know, people, there's lots of people have talked about this issue, and, and there's no shortage of insight on this. There's no shortage of various government commissions, reports, reform efforts to limit uh, the government on these issues, the American government. And there have been some limitations in some instances. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, who would be the worst party to limit the uh, 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 security powers of, of the American government? Uh, I would submit it is the American government. Uh, they're the, wor the, the worst people. They're the last ones you'd want to turn to. Uh, and so uh, when people who possess power uh, uh, pretend that they want to tie their own hands, uh, to my way of thinking, that's a good reason for skepticism. Um, if not to turn around and run in the other direction as fast as you can. Which leads me to my last point. Uh, I ideology uh, uh, can constrain foreign policy. Uh, now, many economists are uncomfortable making ideological arguments, and I understand why. Uh, but when it comes to constitutional political economy, uh, uh, ideology is crucial. Uh, I like this quote by Judge Learned Hand because I think it, it captures the essence of what Abby and I are trying to argue, which is that constitutional rules matter. It's not that they don't matter, but those rules, those formal rules, need some kind of underlying belief system in order to sustain, especially when you're talking about something like the security state. And again, in some sense, security and defense uh, is a slippery way of talking uh, because it neglects the, the flip side of that, which is uh, defense, the tools of defense can be used offensively against foreigners and domestic folks. The tools of creating security again, uh, can also be used to create insecurity. Uh, and so 
you know, the War Department was much better than the Department of Defense in terms of a, a descriptor of, of what was actually uh, uh, going on. Uh, and so I just want to lay out very briefly what we call the uh, anti-militarist anti mindset at the end of our book, and this is where we conclude. And there's some mix of these characteristics, uh, uh, which is, uh, and, and just before I go on, you know, ultimately this places a very strong burden on citizens. Uh, in order to live in a free society, there is a significant burden. Of course, by no uh, means are we the first to point these, this out. Uh, Vincent Ostrom pointed it out. Even James Buchanan pointed it out later in his career. Of course, early in his career, he's much more focused on, on the design or contractual emergence of constitutions. But later in his life, he talks about what happens when people are afraid to be free. Uh, and, and he argues when people are afraid to be free, the gig is up. Uh, because they're, they're, you know, government is just going to expand uh, and, and uh, erode and destroy liberties and freedoms. Uh, so number one, cares about freedom. Pretty straightforward. When people don't care about freedom or they're indifferent to it, uh, they'll be much more likely to trade it off. Uh, when people say things like, I have nothing to hide, therefore government should be able to do X, uh, uh, that's what this is getting at. Has some sense about the threat that government uh, uh, poses to citizens' liberties and freedoms. Uh, recognizes that foreign intervention uh, can undermine those liberties and freedoms. Uh, acknowledges that the trade-off that politicians constantly talk about, the security liberty trade-off, which is you give us a little bit of your liberty, we'll give you more security, uh, is uh, uh, too simplistic. And that's a polite way of putting it. Uh, 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 and it's pretty straightforward, of course. There's different margins of, of security. Uh, and so you can give government in principle security to make you safer from an external threat, but you are less safe from an internal threat uh, uh, that is driven by that state apparatus. Patriotism. Uh, a lot of people uh, like to make the argument that, that you know, this argument we're putting forth is somehow unpatriotic. And of course, this is one of the, the, the cheap forms of argumentation that people make against anyone that tends to be skeptical of US foreign policy. You're unpatriotic. You don't care about your country. Uh, but we, what we argue is that the true patriot is, is always and everywhere skeptical of their government. Uh, and, and, and the unpatriotic uh, uh, folks are those that are passive uh, and simply are willing to turn over power uh, in the name of protecting them. You know, a lot of people like to quote Randolph Bourne, War is the Health of the State, and people on the right say it when it benefits them, people on the left say it when it benefits them, on all everywhere. Uh, I'm convinced very few people have actually read the piece. Uh, if you've read the piece, State is the key word. Born differentiates between three categories. There's the state, government, and country. Country is your people. That is, that is the people you associate with. Those are, are, are your fellow human beings. Can be based on a whole variety of, of different margins how you associate with people. The state is the apparatus of coercion and force. The government is the machinery that constitutes the state. So remember, war is the health of the state. War is the health of the coercive apparatus. For Born, you can love your country and simultaneously be skeptical of the state and government. And in fact, for Born, the good patriot, the person that truly loves their country, is always skeptical of their, the state and, and government precisely because they understand the risk posed. Seeks an understanding of the risks, uh, the true risks uh, uh, that they face from external and internal uh, enemies. And finally, understands the price of living in a free society. Uh, and, and the price of living in a free society, contrary to what politicians tell us, from both sides of the political aisle, is that people do bad things. Uh, the idea that government can insulate us from, from all of the risks in the world uh, is, is patently absurd. Uh, and, and people do bad things, including murder, including terrorist acts. Uh, this has been part of, of humankind since time immemorial. These aren't post-9-11 phenomena. Uh, and uh, uh, so the, the anti-militaristic mindset 
uh, uh, recognizes that there's kind of a, a dual potentiality going on. The government can potentially uh, uh, protect you from risks. I say potentially here because of the various pathologies in democratic politics that you all are aware of. And there's potential risks because they may not come to ever come to fruition. They may not ever actually emerge. Uh, but the costs of potentially reducing these potential harms are real. And here's what some of the costs are that we know about. Uh, killing American citizens without due process, surveillance, secret watch lists, dragnets, military-style uh, police raids, and the confiscation of private property without warrants for unproven crimes, uh, all in the name of people making, uh, making people safer and protecting their, their liberties. And so what Abby and I hope to point out uh, is, is that the costs of a proactive militaristic foreign policy, one that characterizes, we argue, the U.S. government and has for decades, are, are real and significant. Uh, and it's our hope to, to draw attention to this and hopefully an appreciation for these overlooked costs. Thank you very much. Um, so thanks for inviting me and, uh, and giving me the book, which is highly interesting. Um, so I have a few uh, comments about the book and a few questions that maybe um, Christopher can answer uh, later on or we can discuss. Um, so Tyranny Comes Home is a thorough, serious account of uh, the domestic impact of American interventionist foreign policy. Very well researched um, and discusses this crucial, often overlooked U.S. militarism and the human costs of intervention. To me, it's a very, uh, it's truly an eye-opening account that should be read by every engaged citizen that cares about the future of the nation and global affairs. It's also a breath of fresh air for me. I'm a legal scholar who often reads about intervention, war, use of force, but generally reads about international law scholarship on, on these issues. And when we talk about use of force, we talk about it's exceptional in international law. You have the two exceptions on when you can use, use uh, a force in international affairs, and so it goes on. So for me to read the book like this, that really makes the link between what intervention, uh, foreign intervention brings back home and how it can bring about the loss of uh, domestic liberties uh, was a breath uh, of fresh air. Um, it was quite enlightening to think of interventions um, in that way, and it's a pretty powerful argument when you wanna try to convince different audiences that are not legal scholars trying to say, well, this intervention was unlawful because it's not self-defense. It wasn't authorized by the United Nations. Um, and you lose a lot of people that say, but who cares about that? But when you start thinking about it as, well, we're intervening on these foreign wars, but we're actually losing liberties as uh, citizens in America, then I think you, you really resonate with a much uh, greater um, audience. Um, so I think they make a powerful argument about the boomerang effect and, and this loss of American rights and liberties. To me, this, this link between um, the way that the American army sometimes conducts or often conducts itself in interventions and wars and um, the values and, and international norms that exist was very evident, but it wasn't evident in the sense of do American people realize that if you're accepting the way that foreign military is conducting itself in other countries, that means you there's a disconnect between um, the the way you view your values and your, your rights as American citizens. How can you think of um, having uh, you know, due process when you're not granting due process um, when you're acting um, abroad? 
so reading the book made me think about this famous poem um, by Martin Niemöller, which I hope I'm pronouncing well, the poem, and, uh, the poem of First They Came. So we think about interventions as, you know, first they came for the Jews, but I wasn't a Jewish, so I wouldn't speak up. So, well, why am I going to speak up about this war that is far away from uh, my country? You know, victims that I don't know the details of it, but once you start thinking about, well, this has a boomerang effect and it's coming back to America now, suddenly I can lose rights that I always uh, thought were um, very crucial to my daily life, then I start thinking about um, the costs of these interventions. The book is also a reminder that American foreign interventions are not like Vegas. What happens during American interventions do not stay in foreign lands. It comes back to U.S. soils and have detrimental effects on the American people. Um, so making this link in such a clear, engaging, and um, well-written way, to me, is a very important contribution to the literature. I also think the book is uh, an important um, piece of scholarship in the sense that it's not go going to only um, call on economists or people in, the, in this area of research, but also just more generally, the, the hopefully, um, the American public that will, will look at the book. I, I remember reading it uh, during the summer, and my husband, who's not a legal scholar, an economist, political scientist, saying, oh, this is a very interesting book. When you finish, can, can I read the book? And I was like, th I think that's the point, right? You want the book to call the attention of the more general population as well, in the sense of it makes, it, it, it has an important message that often is overlooked. It happens out there. It's not, they came for them and not for me. Why should I care? Why should I speak up? But when you start thinking about it as, it's happening there, but it's coming back to us and we're losing our liberties here, then I think you can get more um, engaged uh, citizens. To me, one of the greater evils and dangers to society is when citizens stop caring about loss of rights. They stop caring about, you know, it, it's okay that this person uh, didn't have due process because this person is a criminal, is a terrorist. It, it just goes on as a, as a snowball and then eventually you might be uh, the terrorist or you might be the criminal and you, you know, lose your, your liber liberty um, this way. It makes me think about my first day in law school when my criminal law professor said, you know, why do we need fair criminal laws? Why don't we just put the age um, of criminal responsibility for 12, 11 years old? Or why not 10 years old? Because we have so many um, people that are young offenders that are just getting out easy. And he said, well, criminal laws are made for all of us. It's, it could be you or I that eventually are subject to criminal law. So we have to have fair laws. So here, it's the same situation. We can't think about foreign interventions in the sense of, you know, it's happening there. It's, it's great because we're making sure that we're a more secure society because it can come back. And then eventually, American citizens will be the ones subject to uh, loss of liberty. And I think you make a very strong case when we talk about the sur surveillance state where anyone and everyone can be subject to this very um, important loss of uh, privacy and, and other liberties. Um, so I have some general uh, comments about uh, certain parts of the book. So I was reading the first part of the book um, which you make the case and, and explain the theory of the boomerang effect um, and it made me wonder about the case studies 
of specific American interventions. And I, I read your, your work in, in, in previous books, and I know you've done a lot of uh, research on, on humanitarian intervention and other kinds of interventions. And I was thinking of the juxtaposition um, between specific examples of recent intervention, or if there was any one particular example or a few that, that made you really think about this book and think about the case studies that you use in the second um, part of, of the book, or if it was a more generalized uh, theory of, you know, as, y as you do this historical ac account of uh, American interventions. Um, I also wondered uh, what made you select the case study that you did in terms of the loss of liberty. Um, as bef before I got to the part where uh, I read the case studies, I was thinking about this is a very interesting theory and it might explain a lot of things that, that are happening in, in American society. And um, I thought of perhaps over-criminalization and mass incarceration. Does, does the theory also apply uh, to that? Are we more susceptible to accept mass incarceration because of um, this uh, idea uh, or this boomerang effect that you have from uh, being ported back from uh, foreign interventions? Um, I'm also thinking about uh, domestic policies against foreigners and very specific uh, recent policies. And if again, we're, we've created this state of affairs where um, these policies are being more accepted um, than they would have been if we didn't have uh, such a, an interventionist uh, policy. And then uh, one other point was proliferation and obsession with weapons and, uh, you know, even more technology related to weapons with 3D weapons and so forth. Um, so these are just some questions and maybe uh, obviously in a book you can't think of every single case study. So I think my, my question is not why didn't you do these case studies because you might very well say, well, it doesn't really apply to these events, but what made you select the ones that, that you did? Um, and I was, I, I looked at the book very recent. I was also wondering to what extent the analysis takes into account the change in the administration and whether the theory would predict or your, your theory as you were developing and doing the research would have predicted the outcome of the, of the recent presidential elections and if it can be used in a sense to explain um, the policies that are being uh, adopted by the current administration. Would you change anything in your analysis or the main argument knowing what we know about domestic policies, is does it apply it even more um, uh, so uh, in, in the current context? Because I realize the book is published uh, in 2018, but the research probably started a few years ago. Um, so one intriguing point to me, and that's going very specifically, uh, was uh, your analysis on international law and constraints, starting on page uh, 63. So I think I have a, a bit more of an optimistic view of the international legal system, and maybe that's because that's what I do day and night. I read about international law, and I have to think that international law is a thing, and it's a law, and it's not just <laughs> international relations that exist, otherwise I'll probably be out of a job. Um, so uh, my point is that I don't disagree that international constraints are weak, especially related to the United States, but it also um, connects to another theme that I wanted to touch on, which is institutional reform. Um, so when we think about international law and the, the weaknesses, I often think about institutional reform and specifically looking at the United Nations. So if, if the um, subject is use of force and wars, one way that you can, that you can use force is with United Nations 
um, authorization. And with the system the way it is, and uh, the American, uh, the United States having a veto in the United Nations, we're often at a deadlock. So that explains a lot of why the, the system is the way it is, and it's not a perfect system in any way, um, but also imagine a world without international law, without the Convention Against Torture, the Convention Against Genocide, and so forth. Yes, there is still genocide, yes, there is still torture, but um, there are strides that are being uh, made. So I think, uh, you know, when thinking about uh, the weak constraints uh, of treaties not being enforceable and so forth, I also think about, you know, let's look at international law from an institutional redesign and reform um, uh, point of view. So one more, more specific comments, uh, you mentioned on page seven, uh, the goal of foreign intervention is ir irrelevant for the analysis. And I thought at first I reread it and I thought that's an interesting point. Um, so I wonder if that's always the case. And I, and I get the argument as to why it's irrelevant for the analysis because you're, um, you're I agree that the methods employed in the interventions are central to the analysis. Um, but in a way I was wondering about does it, does it, not, does it not matter if you're, if you're intervening in a context of you know, Iraq or in a context of what we're seeing now in Yemen, for example. Um, so for the development of the theory, yes, but I just wondered, in your, in your, in your view, um, would it not matter um, the, the kind of context that the, the US military is intervening? Um, and then I think my second to last point is the judiciary, which again is a very interesting um, point to me. I, I really liked how, for example, in page 45, the you mentioned that judiciary does not always passively endorse the activities of the state, and then you cite uh, Boumediene and, and Bush as uh, one of the cases. But I wonder also if those cases are kind of a, th a treasure of the past, and if we will we'll still have those cases. I look at uh, recent developments in uh, Supreme Court uh, appointments and so forth, and I wonder if uh, Boumediene will ever come again. If we have a case like that again, will it, will it become um, you know, a much more worrisome decision than we had the recognition of habeas corpus rights and, and so forth. So when I talked about the, the danger of losing citizens' hearts and minds and, um, and what you mentioned uh, in, uh, in, um, in the quote that you just used at the end of your presentation, I think also Another danger is the loss of the judiciary. Again, I'm a believer in judges' powers to be uh, uh, strong checks and balances on executive powers and um, what the military can do uh, abroad. And if we lose the judiciary, then, then that's, that's a major concern in terms of loss of liberty. And lose the judiciary in the sense that, you know, if citizens are accepting that, uh, you know, the appointment of judges, it's not, it's not, it's okay because it's not going to uh, matter for my own uh, liberties, then, uh, then we're really in trouble. Um, and I can go on and cite uh, examples of uh, situations in Canada where, um, you know, in Guantanamo Bay, which is an example that comes often, uh, there was a case of Carter, Omar Carter, who was a Canadian citizen um, in Guantanamo Bay. And um, that connects to the point of the application of the Constitution uh, abroad. So the Supreme Court was called on uh, to decide this case by, uh, you know, the lawyers of Carter brought the case to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they said generally the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Constitution, wouldn't apply extraterritorially in Guantanamo Bay, but he is a Canadian citizen, and the um, 
agents of the government were participating in the system, collecting evidence and handing over the evidence to the American citizens, to the American officials there. And that would be against our values. Um, that wouldn't be able to happen in, in Canada. So in that sense, uh, there is an exception that the charter rights would still be um, applied in that, in that situation. So, so it was, in a way, a victory of the judiciary going back and saying, look, there's this rule that generally uh, the Constitution wouldn't apply exploitatorily, but in this situation, it would uh, still protect the, the rights of this Canadian citizen because of the involvement of Canadian officials. Um, so my last point is on um, management of risk, and that uh, connects to one of your uh, conclusions of the price of living in a free society. So that I, I think this is a brilliant conclusion. Like Citizens have to, um, I guess, realize that there is a cost, there is a price to living in a free society in the sense that, yes, there will be risks of, of terrorism, but the response to these risks are not let's just get rid of all rights and liberties so that we fight uh, these, these risks. And m management of risk for me is in the sense of how can we accept the risk of losing very fundamental rights and freedoms, due process, um, subjecting people to torture and so forth because of a risk or a potential risk of being a victim of terrorism. When I read all the studies that you cited, it's a very minute risk, it's a very minuscule risk of being, it's not like I go outside now and I might be bombed by a terrorist on George Mason campus. So it's a bit like you're afraid of flying, but if you look at studies, you're much more um, likely to have an accident going to work in your car than flying an airplane. So, um, and, and again, doing a parallel, we're willing to spend a lot of money trying to recover from hurricanes, but we're not willing to spend money to put in, into effect the Paris Agreement. So it's, it's this idea of, you know, what risks are we willing to take um, and, you know, shifting a little bit uh, this idea of risk. So um, I will stop here so that we have time for discussion. And I wanted to thank you again for the opportunity. It's a very interesting book, and I invite you all to have a copy and read it. Well, thank you for coming out, and thank to the organizers for inviting me. I, um, I blurbed this book, and I can tell you as a blurbist, one has certain moral obligations to uh, uphold the blurb. <laughs> uh, but I'm happy to do that, because I read through the book again for a second time uh, just last week, and, and I do recommend it very highly. Very insightful, original work, and I, I dare say important. We'd like to, people who write books like to think that their books are important. Um, and sometimes they are. So I hope this one is too. Um, I'm going to make two, two very different kinds of comments uh, about the subject matter. Um, the first one, very briefly, is uh, about suppression of free speech as a result of war making. Uh, and I focus on this particular item because it's something that in effect happened to me um, in the last uh, war, the Iraq War uh, of uh, the invasion of 2003. Um, not suppressed in the sense of, you know, being arrested or going to jail or anything like that, not that heroic, 
Um, but because I raised questions about how many people were dying in the Iraq war, um, along with some people who actually did the calculations, did a household survey in Iraq, uh, published it in the British uh, medical journal, The Lancet, and then uh, we promoted it, uh, wrote about it, spoke about it, and so on. And it was a very eye-opening experience to go through uh, in the following way. This was 2006. Uh, the war had been, of course, going on for uh, three years, almost three years, when we went, when the researchers, epidemiologists associated with Johns Hopkins, went to the, the field to do the survey, um, a survey that uh, went to 1,800 households, large survey, randomly selected in Iraq, and came up with a number of um, uh, excess deaths, as it's called, um, of 600,000 at that point. Uh, this was treated by most of the mainstream news media and certainly almost every single politician uh, as a kind of travesty, a, 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 a bold um, lie, basically, that was not even feasible uh, in political discourse at that point. So we had the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, denouncing us in, in, uh, in print, in an editorial, um, attributing somehow to George Soros the, uh, the this this number, uh, because Soros's foundation happened to fund some of the work, um, having an article in the National Journal uh, that was um, just really kind of a crazy um, set of allegations, eighty some um, mistakes as I counted them. Uh, and on and on through the, a lot of the news media uh, and a, a lot of the political discourse. Uh, two days after the survey results were announced, uh, George Bush was asked about it in a press conference by a CNN reporter, remarkably enough. Um, and he said uh, that 600,000 was a ridiculously high number. It's closer to 30,000. Um, and that the methodology had pretty much been discredited. Um, now, for George Bush to say that a scientific methodology had been discredited was really um, the kind of uh, bold claim that uh, needed some examining. But in any case, um, we went on like this for many months and years, actually, sort of, um, you know, and my, again, my role was relatively minor. I commissioned the survey and I wrote a lot about it and, and so on, organized some of the response. Um, but it was really something to watch on a day-to-day -day basis how this, this militarization, uh, this war that had become, you know, a very sore point in American politics, nevertheless had this dampening effect on debate. You basically couldn't even discuss it without uh, being accused of one thing or another. Um, usually, um, you know, making up the number or uh, somehow distorting the data. Um, so, you know, I've seen this happen firsthand, and I think that, that it really is um, 
remarkable how it can happen uh, in this society. But of course, we're seeing since then many remarkable things happen, which we never thought would. Uh, my second point is a much broader and difficult, uh, a different kind of um, uh, point of analysis, and that is uh, what Chris and Abigail are discussing um, has a backdrop that uh, they allude to from now, now and again, but I'd like to make it more explicit because I think it's very explanatory. And that is um, what I would call the master narrative of American, of the American experience. Um, and what I mean by a narrative is, of course, a story, a story about America that has uh, gained a, a kind of um, sort of standard truth um, and is taught to us in many, many different ways. But it began, really, with the first European successful European settlement uh, of America, that is, the, the Puritans in Massachusetts. Uh, this narrative, uh, which has been most thoroughly explicated by the cultural historian Richard Slotkin in a trilogy, which I recommend very strongly to you, called uh, Regeneration Through Violence is the first volume, three volumes, about 2,000 pages, so it's not something to be taken lightly, but it's a remarkable piece of scholarship in which he talks about what this narrative is. He calls it the myth of the frontier, and it has to do with how the Puritans and then subsequent actors in American history regarded the frontier as sort of the life-giving uh, confrontation between the settlers and the wilderness, what the Puritans called the errand, an errand to the wilderness. And errand to the wilderness, which in their, in their reckoning was divinely ordained, um, involved uh, subduing the savages of the wilderness uh, and reaping the bounty of the wilderness. And this theme has come back time and time and time again throughout American history, and this is what Slotkin shows in his history, and other historians like William Appleman Williams, uh, among others, have also written about. Um, the importance of this for this book is that uh, at the end of the 19th century, uh, the wilderness or the frontier in on this continent was pretty much uh, over in a sense. That is, there was no frontier left. We had settled uh, the entire continent. And so thinkers like um, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, among many others, uh, saw, the, uh, saw the, the frontier, uh, the American frontier, which they associated with, the, with values of, of democracy and self-reliance and other Ameri sort of distinctly American um, uh, qualities or ones that we thought of as being part of the sort of American exceptionalism, um, they were in a, in a kind of a panic, so to speak, because if the frontier was over, then the forging of these important values might also be over. And so they saw the frontier then as being something that we should pursue overseas. They had in mind China more than any other place. 
but it actually applies to, to a number of overseas adventures. And if you look at the language that has been used in many of these overseas adventures, especially in the developing world, as opposed to the World War, the world, um, Wars of, of the last century, um, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Korea, and so on, uh, you'll see this language pop up again. It's, it's uh, that we are the civilizing influence. Uh, that the that the people that we are subduing are savages in some way or another, just like the indigenous peoples of this continent uh, were the savages of the of the first three centuries of this, and so on. It goes on and on, and it's really quite striking, even when you look at something as recent as the Iraq War, how often this imagery and these kinds of illusions come up time and time again. Cowboys and Indians, basically illusions of various kinds, captivity narratives, uh, all the, the whole package of, uh, of this frontier thesis. Now, why is this important to this book? Well, my contention is that the difference between foreign adventurism and domestic politics is almost an illusion itself because of the origins of this ideology. That is that it was one continuous flow of subduing the, uh, the wilderness um, rather than looking at it as something that was just domestic or just foreign. Um, let me give you an example from this morning's news. In fact, once you start looking at things through this lens, you see it everywhere. Um, this morning it's reported that the United States government is denying passports to citizens who were Hispanic people who were born um, or who, who earned citizenship and lived near the border with Mexico. I'm not quite sure the whole dimensions of what's actually being done, but it's being reported that way. The a sensible reason for this is that they believe there are faults. The government believes there are faults. Uh, they have false birth certificates. Um, but if you think about the larger narrative of how the United States, in particular certain factions in the United States, have been treating immigrants um, in political discourse in the last uh, several years, you begin to see that they are being treated as basically savages and that we are using all kinds of legal and sometimes even extra legal remedies uh, to keep them out of the country or to expel them out of the United States, even those who were born in the United States. So for example, the, the governor of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, has denied uh, birth certificates to children born in Texas uh, of parents who are here without authorization. That's a direct violation of the 14th Amendment. Um, this kind of stuff has been going on now for quite a long time. And of course, it's accelerating. You know the story about the border kids and all the rest of it. Um, and then when you look at how these immigrants, not just those who are here illicitly, but those um, mainly of Hispanic origin, have been portrayed within the political discourse in this country as people who are, what, rapists and murderers and drug dealers and so on. Uh, you see that they're being depicted as, essentially, as savages. 
and this is a direct, uh, in my view, uh, a direct um, consequence of how we have regarded um, people from uh, Mexico and, and other places south of the border, along with our own indigenous people. Many of them are, of course, indigenous uh, origin people themselves. Um, one other example, uh, which I think is relevant, because this, this cascades into a number of civil liberties issues, uh, not just uh, the denial of some rights for immigrants, but for example, um, in trying to explain the dynamics of gun culture in this country. You know, there's, there's this constant sort of fretting on the left and defensiveness on the right about what gun culture is. You know, when there's a mass shooting, um, people begin to start talking about this again. Um, and those on the right, of course, cite the Second Amendment. Those on the left cite the statistics of tens of thousands of people dying every year because of gun violence. Um, you know, one thing that I think, it's just one factor, it's not the only factor, that goes into explaining what gun culture is goes back to the frontier thesis. That is that guns and self-protection and the responsibility for protecting yourself and your family was very much a, an idea that came out of the frontier experience. And I think that quite a few people who own guns um, relate to that, precisely to that ethos. And you can see it to some extent in surveys of, um, of people who own guns. You ask them, why do you own guns? The principal answer is for self-protection. Uh, and if you explore that a little bit further, you'll see that it's protection against certain kinds of people. Um, so that's just one example among many possibilities of how this divide between violence, between foreigners, between domestic politics, and so on, all these sort of membranes of, uh, of, of American politics um, really can flow uh, very quickly uh, either way. That is, that what is foreign becomes domestic and, and vice versa. So that, that would be my one, um, not a criticism, but sort of an addition, I suppose, to the analysis that Chris and Abby have put forward. That is that there is a backdrop to all this. It's not simply something that is, that is happening only as has been explained here, but there are deep cultural roots to how these issues play out. And I think the frontier thesis explains quite a bit of it. Uh, so thank you for having me here today. I will be brief. It's hot. We have lots of questions. Um, so thank you for having me. And it is, it is my pleasure and my honor to discuss this important work. Uh, first, I'd like to note that Tyranny Comes Home highlights the increasingly blurred lines between foreign and domestic interventions uh, that we've all spoken about today. The war on drugs and the global war on terror are not simply conflicts that take place in foreign lands. They affect our lives here in the United States each and every day. And I think that is one of the core messages of this book, and it's a very important one. 
But more broadly, professors Coyne and Hall illustrate how the unseen costs of foreign intervention are not the consequence of a single discrete choice. These are effects that accumulate over time, that are unpredictable and unknowable in advance, and operate through a variety of different channels. This book is rich in both theory and empirics. And while there are many fascinating uh, aspects of these arguments that we've touched upon and that I could discuss, I'm going to focus on the key contributions of Tyranny Comes Home uh, in terms of one ongoing foreign intervention that, in my mind, dominates much of the book, the Philippines. The relationship between the United States and the Philippines stands as an example both of formal and informal power projection and control. So the formal aspect refers to the U.S.-Philippine War and the occupation of the Philippines as a form of foreign intervention aimed at establishing direct control over the population. But the latter, informal control, refers to the long-standing U.S.-Philippine alliance, which has given the United States access to military bases in the country and significant, significant influence over the country's politics. So as a professor of international affairs, but also as a Filipino-American, I believe that the renewed attention that this book brings to the case uh, and in particular, the light it shines on ongoing U.S.-Philippine relations can help us understand some of the long-term and unforeseen consequences of this experiment in American imperialism. I'll note that some of the images that I'm going to display contain graphic content that some might find offensive. Feel free to look down at your phone if that's the case. So one major channel for the boomerang effect described in Tyranny Comes Home is human capital the knowledge and skills gained through training and experience. And as the authors note on page 36, quote, intervening abroad provides a learning environment in which participants obtain a unique set of skills for coercively controlling fellow human beings, end quote. The image that I display here is a photograph of US soldiers administering what was known as the water cure to a Filipino, a form of torture not unlike waterboarding, uh, which is discussed extensively in chapter seven. However, it's important for everyone to remember that while foreign intervention creates human capital amongst the interveners, as was discussed uh, extraordinarily well in this book, it also transfers those same sets of skills of coercion and social control to local collaborators. Intervening powers often set up institutions of coercion abroad that then become absorbed into domestic institutions when the intervention ends or evolves. In political science, we often refer to such institutional processes stemming from foreign intervention as colonial legacies. The authors note several important constraints on the boomerang effect, including the Constitution, the separation of powers, the judiciary, local government institutions, and an anti-militarist ideology. But what happens when these countervailing institutions break down, or if they never existed at all? In the case of the Philippines, periods of institutional weakness have been directly related to the imposition of martial law, which involves the suspension of some individual light, rights, such as habeas corpus, and the expansion of military power. Martial law was imposed in the Philippines in response to the Spanish-American War, the U.S.-Philippine War, World War II, but more recently, individual rights, including protections against indefinite detention and arbitrary arrest, have occurred through the manipulation of fear, another major theme of this book. 
Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos used fear of communism and insurrection to impose martial law in 1972. The Philippines remained under state of martial law for more than eight years and under Marcos's dictatorship until 1986. During his rule, Marcos allowed security institutions, including the military and the intelligence apparatus, to compete with each other as he mobilized state resources for surveillance, capture, torture, and in some cases, the elimination of his political opponents. Amnesty International estimates that 70,000 Filipinos were imprisoned and approximately 34,000 tortured during the eight years of martial law under Marcos. But more recently, current Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte has harnessed fear of drug cartels, of addicts, and of terrorists to expand state control over the lives of millions of Filipinos. He also successfully orchestrated the ousting of the Chief Justice of the Philippine Supreme Court. This has occurred through his own war on drugs, which has claimed an estimated 12,000 lives. Both the Philippine National Police and vigilante groups have been empowered to assassinate suspected drug pushers and addicts. The circle of potential victims has been expanded even to include local politicians who are seen as supportive of criminal gangs or other groups. And while these extrajudicial killings have been widely condemned by the international community uh, and human rights groups, there's also been talk of referring President Duterte to the International Criminal Court for investigation, they continue. But the expansion of social control has also been extended to more than 25 million Filipinos living in the predominantly Muslim southern region of Mindanao. In May 2017, a conflict broke out in the city of Marawi following the attempted arrest of an ISIS-linked militant. In response, President Duterte imposed martial law over the entire region. So one incident in a single city of 300 to 400,000 people resulted in the imposition of martial law over a population of 25 million. The city of Marawi itself was subject to widespread destruction and displacement of hundreds of thousands of civilians in the government's attempt to achieve, quote, the total eradication, unquote, of Islamist extremists. Martial law has since been extended twice by the Philippine Congress. And a bomb attack this past Tuesday, two days ago, which saw two killed and 30 injured, is being used to call for the further extension of martial law beyond its December 31st, 2018 expiration date. So what does this resurgence of repression in the Philippines have to do with the boomerang effect, or the militarization of policing, or the use of torture by the United States? First, I would argue that one can think of the impact of foreign interventions in terms of both a boomerang and an echo. In addition to the many issues discussed in Tyranny Comes Home, American interventions in the Philippines not only during the Philippine War, but during World War II and the global war on terror, established important cultural and institutional links between the two countries, some of which have been positive for the citizens of both. Think of all the English language call centers we get and Manny Pacquiao and the Filipinos' love of spam, the food, not the email, right? But some have not. The United States imported its structure of coercive institutions into the Philippines but without establishing the constraints that exist at home, or as was mentioned, extending the protections of the US Constitution to Filipinos. The result is that you can hear today the echoes of patterns of repression from the past. 
Secondly, the long-standing presence of U.S. military bases and joint military exercises have militarized Filipino society in ways similar to the United States. This has occurred both through the creation of human and physical capital. Philippine soldiers receive military training from the United States that is intended to increase their effectiveness and their lethality. The United States also supplies arms to the Philippines, which shape the ways in which it is able to use force. This is precisely the synergy between human and physical capital that is discussed by Professors Coyne and Hall in their book. And the combination of these influences is most evident in Philippine counterinsurgency operations. Overwhelming air power was used in the recent conflict in Marawi, as demonstrated in the previous photo. But this conflict saw some 1,500 fighters pitted against the Philippine National Military, the National Police, and U.S. military advisors. According to official figures, which cannot be independently verified, 920 militants, 165 Philippine soldiers, and 47 civilians were killed in the fighting. But there have been allegations of torture and abuse against both the ISIS-aligned fighters and the Philippine military. At the same time, the decades of U.S. military presence in the Philippines have created social institutions such as the booming sex trade around military bases that were for the benefit of U.S. military personnel to the detriment of Filipinos. But perhaps most importantly, this case shows that foreign interventions really never end. They just evolve. This suggests that the boomerang effect, so aptly described by the authors, will continue both at home and abroad. So my challenge to you and to the authors is to ask, how can such damage be repaired. Thank you. All right. Unfortunately, we we're, we're, uh, came to the end. It doesn't mean the conversation is just beginning, but I want to take a, a second to thank Miriam, uh, John, and Jessica for the time and care. Those were fantastic presentations, so thank you very much for those. And to congratulate Chris uh, and Abby in abstention. Hi, Abby. Uh, that, uh, you know, for what a wonderful uh, contribution to the literature. So please join me in thanking everyone here. <laughs> and uh, thanks to the staff uh, here at, at Mercatus for doing all the stuff uh, to make it all go. And we now start the semester off, and we have the PPs Tuesdays, uh, Thursdays at 2 o'clock. And next week, uh, you know, we'll be meeting here again. So thanks a lot, and stay cool. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.